You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, it's a joy to be here. I'd like to share a few thoughts from the prologue of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Wherein, the text reads, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. In a postmodern and post-Christian culture, the muse of such a culture is as diverse as the people who inhabit it. A postmodern culture who has killed God off uh, has no concept for revelation. They prize what is real, what can be seen, what can be touched, what can be tasted. And a post-Christian culture, a culture that no longer finds its moral center in the authority of God, is one that has tossed revelation aside for realness. There is no authoritative word, there is no meta-narrative, there is no ultimate word, no, there is realness prized over revelation. Dr. Doug Webster, one of my former professors at Beeson, says it this way, in lieu of biblical revelation, belief is a matter of skeptical probability or spiritual intensity. I believe what we need today is not more religion or more realness. We desperately need revelation. We need the divine disclosure that centers upon the identity of God, the person and work of Christ, not in relationship with God that depends on and centers upon self. And because it is easy for postmodern thought to creep into the church, We desperately need the book of Hebrews, and we need the contribution found here in the prologue. Webster, again, is helpful here when he says that Hebrews is a tour de force for the person and work of Christ and a manifesto against respectable, self-justifying religious habits. The prologue to Hebrews gives us not realness, In the sense of postmodernism, it gives us the most real person. It gives us revelation. And I believe that here in this text, it shows us that Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, is the revelation of God, and this compels us to worship. Verses 1 and 2 show us that Christ is the revelation of God. Long ago, throughout the Old Testament, God himself revealed himself in smoke, in cloud, in fire, in pillar, in earthquake, in storm, and even in the whisper of wind. And yet all of those ways in which God revealed himself pales into comparison with the person of Jesus Christ. God speaks through poetry. 
metaphor, figure, symbol, type, and even song. But now at long last, he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. This is encouragement to my soul because it's a reminder that God is not silent. He is a speaking God. And he has spoken the ultimate word to us through Christ himself. It is a blessing then to consider that God still employs through the text, through the scriptures, the same ancient, timeless, indefatigable thing used to fashion all of the universe, namely his word. He still speaks into our hearts. Verse 3 gives us seven assertions about the Son of God, and they act almost like a rainbow proudly displayed over the Son of God. These colorful phrases add a little Jesus in color. This is the movement from black and white monochromatic TV to all TV, all color television. But even more radiant than that is the Son himself and how he shines. The first assertion, the author of Hebrews says, is that this Son of God, this revelation of God, is the heir of all things. We need to understand that Jesus rightfully lays claim to all that there is for his will and pleasure. The revelation of God is so important to understand when we consider ourselves in that light. Because God is not one who can be found. He is not the object of some divine celestial game of hide and seek. Where if we peer around the right corner at the right time, if we look beneath our beds or even under the pews, there we might find him No, God who wraps himself in unapproachable light is one who cannot be found. He must be revealed. And understanding Jesus as the heir of all things is, uh, to me at least, it means that we have inherited this unapproachable God wrapped in human flesh in a way that we can identify with him. It goes on to say the preacher here in Hebrews says that through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the divine architect of all things seen and unseen. And then third, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, I don't know what the weather's been like here in Birmingham, but this past weekend was the first time we had three consecutive days of sun since Thanksgiving. And there, as my family and I were outside playing, enjoying the rays of the sun, as, we've celebrating, as we're celebrating the Lord uh, for deliverance after what feels like six months of rain and storm, weeping and gnashing of teeth. There, in the radiance of the glows of the sun, there was warmth. And in a similar way that our planet is warmed by the radiance of a giant star millions of light years away, so too does the light of Christ shine within the hearts of those who would believe on him by faith. C.S. Lewis said it this way, I know that the sun is in the sky at midday in summertime, not because I see it, but by it I see everything else. John Wesley, when relaying his conversion story, reading Luther's preface to the Romans, he begins to have this experience where he says, in that moment, I felt my heart strangely warmed. What were the affectations that were responsible for Wesley's heart transformation? It was the radiance of the Son of God shining into his heart. And even though we may not always feel this warmth, it doesn't make it any less true. 
The author goes on to make a fourth assertion that he is the exact imprint of his nature. Now, when I read this section in verse 3, I'm, exact, I'm expecting the word imprint there to be the Greek word icon. It is, after all, the Greek word meant to express one thing that represents something larger. I wonder if you remember when Jesus is approached about paying taxes and he says, uh, whose image is on this coin? Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. The image of Caesar on that coin signifies a reality greater than what the coin is itself. But then he says around them, render to the Lord, render to God what is God's. I would expect this icon that Christ would be a representation of God, but that is not the word here. The word here is the word character. It is the word that refers to what God essentially is. It is the essence of God. Here, we find that Christ is the exact essence of the Father. And maybe you were a good Boy Scout or Girl Scout and you learned a long time ago that character is doing the right thing when no one's looking. In private moments, we are the most who we are, not in public. And the very essence of Christ is exactly who the Father is. Our forefathers at Nicaea said it this way, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence. This is God himself, revealed to us in a way that if our forefathers in the Old Testament could ignore smoke, if they could ignore fire, if they could disregard earthquake, if they could look beyond lightning, if they could peer aside from the manifestations of God, the epiphany of God through natural phenomenon, this son has spoken a final decisive word and the judgment of ignoring this son is greater than it was before. He is the very essence of God. The fifth assertion is that he upholds the universe by the word of his power or the power of his word. The same power that creates our faith sustains our faith, just as the same power that created all worlds sustains all worlds. He himself goes on to, we find, making purification for sins, Jesus stepping into a priestly role. That there he is a better sacrifice a more sufficient sacrifice to atone for our sin sickness. And seventh and finally, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, is signifying a complete, flawless victory, is seated in a place of authority without any contenders, with no rival, and with no equal. When I consider the prologue's contribution to our faith, I'm reminded of... of uh, Dr. Webster's words that this is a manifesto against respectable, self-justifying religious habits. But I also really appreciate that here at the very beginning of this letter, the preacher drops the mic, as, it, as, it, as, you, as if you will, a colloquial term to refer to an incredibly emphatic statement made at the beginning of the onset of a work to signify exactly what he means. 
This is a word to every Pharisee, every Sadducee, every Judaizer, every religious person, every person of the culture who would prize realness over revelation, striving to achieve some semblance of self-helped salvation, that there is no greater name than the name of Jesus Christ. F.F. Bruce, a great New Testament scholar, concerning the prologue here to the book of Hebrews, says that Jesus is the prophet through whom God has spoken his final word. He is the priest who has accomplished a perfect work of cleansing for his people's sins. And he is the king who sits enthroned in the place of chief honor alongside the majesty on high. And this king is a king meant to be worshipped. This scene reminds me of Exodus 32 when Moses is having a conversation with God on the mountain. After the people of Israel have committed treasonous acts against God, fashioning a golden calf, declaring this is the God that has ransomed us from Egypt. Moses goes on behalf to petition for the people of Egypt. And there Moses asks, in my opinion, the most audacious question in all of the Bible. He asks of God, God, show me your glory. But he's not just asking for a manifestation of God's glory. He's asking to see God's true self. God, show me your true self. Whereupon God answers, Moses, if I show you my true self, you're going to die. So God hides him in the cleft of a rock, passes the residual manifestation of his glory by him, and the, the passing manifestation of God's glory was enough to light Moses up for an extended period of time and leave no doubt that this is the king of the universe. And the text immediately says that Moses bows his head and worships. And I cannot help but to think and know that the revelation of Christ to us through the New Testament is of greater witness and of greater power than even Moses having a face-to-face conversation with God. What Moses got in part, we get in full. And that leads us and propels us to worship, to give our all, to bow our heads, and to submit to the kingly rule of Christ Jesus for all time. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word. It is timeless. It always returns to you profitable. And it is, upon the hearing of the hearer, effective by the power of your spirit. Would you continue to make this word true within us? Would you lead us to worship, lifting up and extolling your name in every place and in every space that you would have us? And Father, I do ask for even those here today, that they would be led into deeper affection and higher regard of you because of what you have spoken to us this day. We love you. It's in your great name we pray. And all God's people say it. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.